0: Hello and welcome back to yet another episode of Recovering Faith. Today is the fourth part in the series of Problems with the Book of Mormon. And uh, today's episode, uh, this one will cover the books of Jerem through the end of the Book of Messiah. In this part of the Book of Mormon, there are several small one-chapter books, including the Book of Enos that I covered in the last episode. In the last episode, I neglected to mention that in the original publication of the Book of Mormon, the Book of Enos talks about King Benjamin, and in the later episodes, that's changed to King Messiah. This episode starts with the book of Jerem, which is scarcely worth mention, other than he makes mention of steel in verse 8. As I have mentioned or made it abundantly clear in the past episodes, that steel was not known or used by anyone anywhere in the Americas until after the European colonization. It also mentions in this book that they followed the Law of Moses and had priests, but the Law of Moses only offered the priesthood to the descendants of Levi, and these people were supposed to be from the line of Joseph, and could not have legitimately held the priesthood. The Book of Omni is not really worth mentioning, and the Words of Mormon is just an explanation as to where all of the different books within the Book of Mormon supposedly came from, and how Mormon compiled all those books. It gets interesting again when we get to the Book of Messiah. And there is a lot to cover in that book, so without any further delays, we will examine the book of Messiah. In the first few verses of Messiah, it talks about the brass plates that Nephi got from Laban before they left the Holy Land. You remember the pla- the brass plates, he had to go back to the Holy Land and him and his brothers tried several different attempts to kill him and then finally he found Laban drunk in the street and cut his head off and then went back to his house and took the plates. Yeah. Those brass plates. Anyhow, when it talks about the brass plates, it says that if Nephi and, uh, and uh, those others, that if they did not know the language of the Egyptians, that they would not have been able to read the brass plates and to teach the words of God that was written on them to their children. The problem that I have with this, and the problem that I have always had with this, is that the brass plates were supposedly the Torah inscribed on brass pages uh, and that they were in the possession of a man named Laban who was a leader among the Jewish people in Jerusalem. The Torah was traditionally written on scrolls but there is some evidence that the people in this region did sometimes use lead or other materials to write on and it's not the brass pages that I really have the issue with. What I have an issue with is a leader of the Jewish people teaching other Jews the law from the Torah written in Egyptian, the language of an idol-worshipping people. It is also a tradition among the Jewish people that, while you can read the Torah written in other languages, such as English, when you study it or teach from it, you have to do so from the original Hebrew language. It is true that when Jewish people were in captivity or scattered they would often be forced to learn and write the languages of their captors as a lot of them probably learned Egyptian when they were in Egypt but the law of Moses and the Torah were not written until after the children of Israel left the captivity in Egypt and they were free to speak and write Hebrew the language that they viewed as holy above all others so in a situation where they were free, the thought that they would ever have written uh, their holy scriptures in language of an idolatrous people, specifically that of a people who made their very existence nearly unbearable for 500 years, is absolutely ridiculous. In verse 6 of the first chapter of Messiah, it talks about how they could know for surety that the engravings were true because they had them before their eyes. Which is yet another reason why, if the golden plates were real, and of god they should have been made available to the world so that everyone could know they were both real and true if the golden plates were real and available for examination they would have gone through the same rigorous examinations that the bible has and uh, they would have been validated the story that the angel took them to heaven instead of allowing them to remain on earth does not make any sense unless either there were no plates, or they did not say what Joseph Smith said that they did, like the papyrus that he said he translated the Book of Abraham from. I plan on later having a series on the Pearl of Great Price, including the Book of Abraham and its origins. But for now, for those of you who may not be familiar with its origins, I will briefly explain the controversy with the Book of Abraham. When the saints were living in Illinois, a man came through selling egyptian mummies and joseph smith discovered that there were some ancient scrolls with them and he offered to buy the scrolls but as a salesman was eager to just get it over with and go home it was an all-or-nothing sale and in order to get the scrolls smith had to buy the mummies as well the asking price nearly three thousand dollars was an exorbitant rate for the time but joseph smith managed to raise the money from his followers and ordered to buy the mummies and the scrolls. At the time, the saints were struggling financially, as they were also giving more than they could afford to build a temple, and they were also financially supporting Joseph Smith and his family. Joseph Smith said that he translated the ancient writings and discovered that they were the writings of Father Abraham, and even wrote in his journal that he was translating the scrolls smith went so far as to write an egyptian alphabet and translation at this time the rosetta stone had just recently been discovered and had not been translated and there was no one alive who could read egyptian so when smith claimed to translate the egyptian language people were understandably impressed fast forward a few years and joseph smith had been murdered while in prison in carthage illinois where he was being held while he was awaiting trial for using his authority to wrongly destroy a privately owned printing press and for treason against the state of illinois and for a host of of other crimes charges that he would have undoubtedly been convicted for had he lived long enough to stand trial a lot of the locals had had enough of smith and his scheming and organized a lynch mob and broke into the prison where smith was being held and murdered him along with his brother Hiram. It wasn't long after Joseph Smith and his brother were killed that the rest of the church was forced to either abandon the teachings of Smith that did not conform to the standards of morality and decency in the community and to the laws of the land, or to leave the state. The majority of the church opted to follow the next president and claimed prophet of the church, Brigham Young, to Utah, but many stayed in Illinois as well, including Emma Smith, Joseph's first wife and his mother, Lucy Mac Smith. Emma Smith kept the scrolls in her possession instead of allowing the church to have them and later sold them, with a letter of authenticity certifying that they were the same scrolls her husband used to translate from and to write the Book of Abraham. It was believed that the scrolls were destroyed in the Great Chicago Fire. So later, when Egyptian could be read and translated, they were nowhere to be found and all we had to go by was the facsimiles in the Pearl of Great Price, and the church was quick to make the claim that it was neither fair nor accurate to translate or to judge the translation from a copy and not the original. Some time later the scrolls, along with the letter of authenticity from Emma Smith, were found in the attic of a museum and offered to the church who was understandably glad to get them. Now the church could prove once and for all that Joseph Smith was a true prophet and translated an ancient scripture. Only, that is not the consensus Egyptologists came to, not even those who were members of the church. As it turns out, the scrolls had exactly diddly and squat to do with anything Joseph Smith said they did. And instead of being the record of Abraham, they were just common burial scrolls Church apologists have since tried to say that the book of Abraham was received through vision and that Smith did not claim to be, uh, they said that Joseph Smith didn't claim it to be a direct translation. But since Joseph Smith said in his own journal that he was translating the scrolls and that they were indeed the writings of Abraham, all that I can say about that idea is, as they say in the South, that dog don't hunt. Anyhow. Now that I've gone down that rabbit hole, I'll get back to Messiah. There are issues in the book of Messiah that were also present in earlier books that I covered, so I will skip them in this episode as to not be too redundant. Some of those issues are claiming to follow the law of Moses while offering sacrifices that are not approved or done in a way that is forbidden by the law of Moses, tribes other than those from the tribe of Levi having the priesthood, animals, plants, and materials mentioned that were not present in any of the Americas during the Book of Mormon time period, etc. Messiah 2.21 says that everything we have comes from God, and that nothing we do, even if we give it our all, will ever amount to much, and that we can't earn what God gives us. I say unto you, my brethren, that if you should serve him who created you from the beginning, and is preserving you from day to day by lending you breath, that you may live and move and do according to your own will, and even supporting you from one moment to the other. I say, if you should serve him with your whole souls, yet you would be unprofitable servants. With verses like this, it baffles me that the church officially teaches that we cannot only earn our way to heaven, but that we can accrue enough good works to become a god. It's interesting that during a discussion with an investigator on my mission, I read Messiah 2.21, and my mission companion protested. And once we were alone, he said that he did not like the way I used the verse uh, and verses like that because he said it made me sound like a born-again Christian. You know, I never really understood it, but Mormons think that it's a horrible thing to be born again. Verses 23 through 25 of Messiah chapter 2 goes into great detail on how we owe everything to God, and that our meager works don't amount to anything, and that we can't earn the grace of God. And now, in the first place, he hath created you, and granted unto you your lives, for which you are indebted unto him. And secondly, he doth require that ye should do as he hath commanded you, for which if ye do, he he doth immediately bless you, and therefore he hath paid you, and ye are still indebted to him. And are and will be forever and ever. Therefore, of what have ye to boast? And now I ask, can ye say aught of yourselves? I answer ye, nay, ye cannot say that ye are even as much as the dust of the earth. Yet ye were created of the dust of the earth, but behold, it belongeth to him who created you. In Mosiah 2.33 it says, For behold, there is woe pronounced unto him who listeth to obey the Spirit. For if he listeth to obey him, and remaineth and dieth in his sins, the same drinketh damnation to his own soul. For he receiveth his wages, and an everlasting punishment, having transgressed the laws of God contrary to his own knowledge. So what about proxy works for the dead? I know that Messiah was speaking mostly to believers, but even those who do not believe in any church and sin know that they are living contrary to the will of God. And based on that that scripture that I just read, once they die, there is no hope for redemption or salvation. Uh, Mosiah 2.33 and other verses in the Book of Mormon basically throws the idea of uh, proxy works for the dead out the window. I always say that there is very little actual Mormonism in the Book of Mormon and that most of the essential doctrines of the Church are not only absent from the Book of Mormon, but the doctrine in the book contradicts a lot of the doctrine of the church. It is official doctrine that God used to be a man and earned his godhood by following the rules of his God. However, the Book of Mormon is full of verses that say God exists as God forever, such as Mosiah 3.5. For behold, the time cometh and is not far distant, that with power the Lord Omnipotent who reigneth, who was and is from all eternity to all eternity, shall come down from heaven among the children of men and shall dwell in a tabernacle of clay and shall go forth amongst men working mighty miracles such as healing the sick raising the dead causing the lame to walk and the blind to receive their sight and the deaf to hear and curing all manner of diseases if jesus was and is from god from all eternity then he could not have been created by god and uh, he could not have been created by God the Father, who was created by his Father God, He was probably created by his Father God. Not only that, but the Book of Mormon is full of verses that say Jesus is God and was God eternally. There are also numerous verses that support the idea of the Trinity, such as Mosiah 3.8 that says, And he shall be called Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Father of heaven and earth, the creator of all things from the beginning. And his mother shall be called Mary. Messiah 3 8 gives us four of the many names that Jesus will be called Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Father of heaven and earth, and the Creator of all things from the beginning. This verse mostly says what John 1 1 says, which is that Jesus is God and was always God, He's been God forever, and that everything that is in existence was made by him including matter mormonism however teaches that god created us and jesus and the devil out of materials that existed as long as he did and that those materials were probably created by a god eons before he existed and that even god himself cannot create or destroy matter and can only reorganize it christianity and apparently the Book of Mormon, teaches that Jesus was not only not created, but that he created all things from the beginning, including matter and the devil. This verse alone tells us that there is no way that the devil is the brother of Jesus, like like LDS doctrine teaches, because Jesus created the devil. The official missionary training manual that I was given on my mission, and also uh, several of the Priesthood and Relief Society manuals, Uh, say that we can't enter the celestial kingdom without the consent of Joseph Smith. But Messiah 3.17 says otherwise, And moreover, I say unto you, there shall be no other name given, nor any other way nor means whereby salvation can come unto the children of men, only in and through the name of Jesus Christ, the Lord Omnipotent. If Joseph Smith is to have any say as to whether or not we enter heaven, Then there is another name given under heaven other than jesus when i was on my mission i would teach that all have fallen short of the glory of god and that we are basically worthless sinners and i was reprimanded for doing so because that goes against the doctrine that we are god's incarnate however the book of mormon disagrees with the god embryo doctrine and agrees with the bible that we are worthless and fallen sinners who can do nothing of ourselves for behold If the knowledge of the goodness of God at this time has awakened you to a sense of your nothingness and your worthless and fallen state, Messiah 4-5. Messiah reminds us again and again throughout this chapter how worthless we are, and uh, specifically in verse 11. Messiah says, And this is the means whereby salvation cometh, and there is none other salvation save this which hath been spoken of neither are there any conditions whereby man can be saved except the conditions which i have told you messiah 4 8. in the following verses we are told what those conditions are to receive salvation and they are to believe in god that he created all things that we repent of our sins humble ourselves before god ask for forgiveness of sins with a sincere heart and to believe There is nothing in that chapter about temple ordinances, priesthood, tithing, or any of the other things the Church says that we must do to be saved. Also, believing we will somehow achieve enough good works to qualify for Godhood someday is most definitely not humbling ourselves before God and retaining in remembrance our unworthiness and worthlessness as the Book of Messiah teaches us to do. The Book of Messiah talks about people following Christ and being called Christian. But there is absolutely no reason to believe that a people who lived over a hundred years before Jesus was even born would claim to follow him or call themselves Christian. Over and over, the Book of Mormon claims that these people were living the Law of Moses, but there is no evidence of that, and instead they acted more like the followers of Jesus after Jesus' death and resurrection. Sure, the children of Israel believed that there would be a Messiah, but they believed that he would be a warrior king who would overthrow the oppressive governments and bring political freedom. And when people found out that he was not what they thought he would be, many of them stopped following him. There is absolutely no reason to believe that a break-off group of Semitic people would be given more insight into the Messiah than the prophets and other writers of the Bible. In previous episodes, I mentioned some of the animals and plants that were out of place in the Americas in the time frame that they were supposed to be in. And in Mosiah 7.22, it mentions barley, which is another food crop that is out of place. And I don't think I mentioned it specifically before. The thing about barley being mentioned in Messiah chapter 7 is that it was supposed to be around 124 BC, and barley wasn't even brought to the Americas until the early 1600s. In Mosiah 7.27, it says that Jesus is God, the Father of all things, and that he should take upon himself flesh, which sounds a lot like the Trinity to me. This verse doesn't say that Jesus is the Son of the Father of all things, but that he is God and the Father of all things. This section of the Book of Mormon talks about the Jaredite plates that were later translated by Mormon to become the Book of Ether. And it tells us how they became part of the story. Around 121 BC, A man named Ammon was sent by King Messiah to find a group of people that left years previous in hopes of finding their ancestral land where their father Lehi lived. When Ammon found the people of Limhi, they recounted to him the story of their discovery of a destroyed people, later learned to be the Jaredites, while they were trying to find their way back to Zarahemla. And uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with the Book of Mormon, uh, Zarahemla is the main capital in the Book of Mormon. And that's where the, the king or the judges, depending on the time frame, that's where the leader of the Nephite people would live, was in Zarahemla. Anyhow, uh, when the people of Limhi accidentally found the area where the Jaredites lived and were destroyed, they found cities, tools, weapons, armor, pottery, written records, coins, and all of the things that you would expect to find after a destruction of a civilized people especially when the destruction occurred over a relatively small period of time. I think Joseph Smith knew that there is always evidence left behind when a civilization is destroyed, and he wanted to make the story of the Jaredites more believable, and that's why he talked about the uh, people of Limhi finding the destroyed cities and, and all of that stuff. When the Europeans came to the Americas, the vast majority of the Native American people died from illness the Europeans brought over with them. Since the natives had never before encountered these illnesses, their immune systems were not equipped to handle them, and the death toll was significant. Some estimates uh, suggest that over 90% of the indigenous population died from these illnesses. Of course, at that time, germ theory had not been discovered yet, and most of the people in the 1800s had no idea why there were so many mass graves and they made up their own stories as to how it could have happened. One of the popular theories of the day was that the people destroyed each other in massive battles despite the fact that there was no evidence to support the claim of there being any large scale battles. I'm sure Joseph Smith assumed that there were massive cities and destroyed civilizations we had not found yet and that at some point there would be evidence found that would support his claim of the ancient people of America. Because Smith was uneducated on the matter, he had no idea how the ancient people in the American continents lived, and probably never thought that his claims about the ancient inhabitants of America would expose his con. When a civilization is destroyed, we find evidence of that civilization. And Smith knew that, and that is why Messiah talks about the people of Limhi finding the fallen civilization of the Jaredites. People who supposedly left the Holy Land and headed to the Americas in submersible barges around the time of the Tower of Babel, approximately 2200 BC. The Jaredite barges story is an extremely interesting topic that makes so little sense on so many levels, and while I am extremely excited to talk about it, I'll hold off and wait until I reach that point in the timeline, which will be when I get to the Book of Ether. In the last battle between the Nephites and the Lamanites, it's taught that millions of people died. Yet no one has ever found any evidence of Nephite weapons, tools, coinage, records, or art, or cities. All throughout the Book of Mormon, we read about massive battles where so many people died that they couldn't be counted. The last battle, which Morane records as happening near the Hill Cumora, which is in upstate New York, is, which is also where he buried the golden plates for Joseph Smith to find, supposedly saw the death of millions of people, with no one left to bury the dead. With, discru- with destruction on that scale, we would expect to find massive graves and weapons of war, but none have ever been found. Some Mormon apologists argue that it happened so long ago that the evidence has been destroyed. But we have found the battle sites that have been written about in other ancient literature that happened much farther back than the last battle between the Nephites and the Lamanites was claimed to have happened. Archaeologists and other scientists have searched for ancient, record, uh, ancient recorded battle areas, and they found them, some of which occurred between 3,000 and 4,000 years ago. Keep in mind that the Book of Mormon records that the last battle between the Nephites and Lamanites occurred in approximately 421 AD. So, being so much more recent, it looks like if that many people died in battle that we would find some evidence of it. In Messiah 8:11, it mentions that the people of Limhi, uh, when they found the Jaredite cities, they found swords that had rusted away. The problem with this is that The Jaredite civilization civilization stretched from 2200 BC to 600 BC and the Iron Age did not even start until around 4000 BC and still was not invented until the 17th century. So there is no way these people could have learned the art of iron and steel smelting before they left the Holy Land and it had not been discovered yet and if such a large civilization discovered it on their own, especially if the Nephites also worked in metal, some evidence of it would have been found. However, there is zero evidence for steel or iron smelting or the use of steel or iron in the Americas before the Europeans came. The Book of Mormon would have us believe that an ancient people discovered technology long before anyone else in the world did, and that they were destroyed in a series of major wars that left no trace of either their vast civilizations or their cities or any of their technology. There is more evidence to support a mass government conspiracy to hide the existence of extraterrestrials than there is to support an ancient coin-using, city-building, and metal-smelting people in America. Messiah 8.13 was thrown in as an explanation as to how Joseph Smith could translate an ancient language. And it says, Now Ammon said unto him, I can assuredly tell thee, O king, of a man who can translate the record for he has wherewith he can look, and translate all records that are of an ancient date. And it is a gift from God, and the things are called interpreters, and no man can look in them except he be commanded, lest he should look, for that he ought not, and he should perish. And whosoever is commanded to look in them, the same is called a seer." I mentioned in earlier episodes. But the Book of Mormon does not have a very charitable opinion of Native Americans, who are supposedly the descendants of the Book of Mormon people. They are often described as wild, ferocious, bloodthirsty uh, bloodthirsty people, a people who are lazy and idolatrous, and indulge in all manner of wanton sin. No wonder the Church has had so uh, little success converting the Native Americans. Chapter 9 and 10 of Messiah, talks about the many tens of thousands slain in battle. And elsewhere in the Book of Mormon, as I mentioned before, it talks about the millions who have died in battle. And as I mentioned earlier, we have not discovered one single mass grave anywhere in any of the American continents that would lend credibility to any of these stories. Yes, we have found some mass graves of the natives who died after the Europeans got them sick, but no mass graves from battles and no mass graves that would date back to the Book of Mormon times. Even though Mosiah 11.2 is about the wicked King Noah, I think Joseph Smith unknowingly wrote it about himself. Also, this is another instance where the Book of Mormon takes a hard pass on polygamy. For behold, he did not keep the commandments of God, but he did walk after the desires of his own heart, And he had many wives and concubines, and he did cause his people to commit sin, and do that which was an abominable in the sight of the Lord. Yea, and they did commit whoredoms, and all manner of wickedness. If you recall from reading the Book of Mormon, or from my earlier episodes, the Book of Jacob condemns the practice of polygamy and of having more than one wife. And of course, Joseph Smith had more than one wife. He had a lot of wives, so... In the Book of, Mormon, of Messiah, there is a prophet named Abinadi, or as uh, people who have never been Mormon would call him, name, with they call him Abinadi, but anyway, it's pronounced Abinadi. And so this prophet Abinadi, uh, he was preaching and telling the king that, he, that uh, the king and the people would be destroyed if they did not repent, and the king wanted to kill him. So he had to go into hiding so he wouldn't be killed. Well, later, he comes back to the city wearing a disguise so they won't know who he is and so they won't kill him. But then, he immediately tells everyone who he is, so there's no real reason for him to wear the disguise in the first place. That part of the story never really made any sense to me. Uh, It makes about as much sense as a person running from the cops. Uh, to wear a disguise so they would not be recognized and then run into the police station and say, oh, hi, I'm, I'm so-and-so and I'm on the, uh, I'm the one you want. I mean, that's about basically what Abinadi did. He dressed up so they wouldn't know who he was and then he showed up in disguise and said, oh, hey, I'm Abinadi. So, in Messiah 12:26, 26, Abinadi says, I say unto you, woe be unto you for perverting the ways of the Lord. For if ye understand these things, ye have not taught them. Therefore ye have perverted the way of the Lord." The LDS Church says that they know the Bible, yet they teach doctrine contrary to the Bible, doctrine that is not only not Christian, but is also blasphemous. So this verse would apply to them. Mosiah 13.34 is one of the many verses in the Book of Mormon that supports the Trinity instead of the current LDS doctrine of plural gods. Have not have they not said that God himself should come down among the children of men and take upon him the form of a man, and go forth in mighty power upon the face of the earth? Notice that Abinadi did not say that one of the gods would come down and take the form of a man, nor did he say that a god would come down in the and show that he was God, or that God was like a man, like us, but he said that God himself would come down in the form of a man. The first five verses in chapter 15 also support the Trinity, making it extremely obvious that when the Book of Mormon was written, Joseph Smith had not concocted the idea of there being more than one God. And now Abinadi said unto them, I would that ye should understand that God himself shall come down among the children of men, and shall redeem his people. And because he dwelleth in flesh, he shall be called the Son of God, and having subjected the flesh to the will of the Father, being the Father and the Son. The Father, because he was conceived by the power of God, and the Son, because of the flesh, thus becoming the Father and the Son. And they are one God, yea, the very eternal Father of heaven and earth. And thus the flesh, becoming subject to the Spirit, or the Son to the Father, being one God, suffereth temptation, and yieldeth not to the temptation, but suffereth himself to be mocked, and scourged, and cast out, and disowned by his people. I mean, that's... that's pretty much the clearest uh, support of the Trinity right there. Messiah 15, 26 through 27 spells it out clearly that when we die in our sins that we have no chance of salvation which again uh, does not support the idea of proxy works for the dead One of the, which is one of the three missions of the church. The three missions of the Mormon church are to proclaim the gospel or at least their version of it to perfect the saints and to redeem the dead and uh messiah fifteen twenty six to 27 says but behold and fear and tremble before god for ye ought to tremble for the lord redeemeth none such that rebel against him and die in their sins yea even all those that per that perished in their sins ever since the world began that have willfully rebelled against god that have known the commandments of God and would not keep them. These are they that have no part in the first resurrection. Therefore, ought ye not to tremble? For salvation cometh to none such. For the Lord hath redeemed none such. Yea, neither can the Lord redeem such. For he cannot deny himself. For he cannot deny justice when it hath its claim. Messiah 16:15 is yet another of the many verses that supports the Bible in there being only one God and that Jesus is God and not merely a God. Teach them that redeemeth, that redemption cometh through Christ the Lord, who is the very eternal Father. Amen. It is clear from this and other verses that Jesus is not only our Savior, but he is God, and that there is only one God. The Book of Mormon is supposed to be the most correct book on earth. Yet Joseph Smith felt it necessary to change the wording of the baptismal prayer from how it reads in Messiah 18.13, which uh, in there he calls a person by name and says, I baptize thee, having authority from the Almighty God, as a testimony that ye have entered into a covenant to serve him until you are dead as to the mortal body. And may the Spirit of the Lord be poured out upon you, and may he grant unto you eternal life through the redemption of Christ, whom he has prepared from the foundation of the world. Compare that to the official wording in the baptism of the baptismal fa- prayer that's found in Doctrine and Covenants 20:73, and there, after you call them by name, so you say, "Having been commissioned of Jesus Christ, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen." And I will mention it in depth when I get to it, but the wording for the sacrament prayers also differs from the Book of Mormon to the official wording in the Doctrine and Covenants as well. Messiah 18.17 says that the Church was called the Church of Christ. But as I pointed out before, I have a difficult time believing that any Semitic people, or any people for that matter, would call their church the Church of Christ nearly 150 years before Jesus was even born. As I have mentioned before, treating the law of Moses as if it had already been fulfilled before it was actually fulfilled would be a great sin. Also, there is no evidence whatsoever that anyone was baptized before the coming of Jesus. The closest thing to baptism that was around before Jesus was the ritual washing people had to do to be ceremonially clean, and those uh, ceremonial washings were private activities that had absolutely nothing to do with baptism and they did not require a priest or anyone else. A person would wash themselves as was required in the law of Moses and then after they were clean then they would present themselves to a priest and say that they had to clean themselves and he'd pronounce them clean but you know you didn't need a priest to clean you and you didn't have somebody else to, so it wasn't like baptism at all. In Messiah eighteen twenty-four, and in 26 it talks about the church leaders supporting themselves. And the LDS church likes to brag that they have no paid ministry, but that's not exactly true. Sure, the multitudes of ward and stake leaders serve for free, but those in the higher positions in the church get paid, including mission presidents, those in the Quorum of the Seventy, the area authorities, apostles, and the First Presidency. Joseph Smith also insisted that the church support him and some of the early members accused him of priestcraft, which uh, priestcraft is defined by the church as uh, preaching for money or, or uh, having people pay you for preaching. So, and, uh, almost, and those members who accused Joseph Smith of priestcraft almost left the church because of it. The God of the Book of Mormon made salvation simple. And more often than not it agreed with the Bible instead of the convoluted and impossible obstacle course that the LDS Church says you must traverse to be saved. For behold, this is my church. Whoever is baptized shall be baptized unto repentance, and whomsoever ye receive shall believe in my name, and him I will freely forgive Messiah twenty six twenty two since the time this passage was written the church has come up with all sorts of conditions and addendums that must be adhered to in order for one to be saved or exalted the lds church teaches that basically everyone will be saved and will go to some degree of glory and that salvation is not what we should strive for but exaltation and becoming a god i think it's important to mention that nowhere in the book of mormon does it support the idea of exaltation or becoming a god. But it takes on more of the biblical view of salvation where we are saved, that when we are saved we serve and worship God for eternity with no goal or chance of becoming more than that. We are just lucky to be saved and we are only saved because of the grace of God. In the 27th chapter of Messiah there is a story about Alma the Younger and the sons of Messiah and their conversion, which is basically a lazy attempt to plagiarize the story of Saul on the road to Damascus. Alma the Younger and the sons of Messiah are persecuting the church and committing all sorts of sin. But they are visited by an angel while they're on the road to somewhere, and the angel says, "Ask them why that they're persecuting God and His church." The meeting leaves Alma ill and unconscious for several days. When Alma comes out of, his, uh, out of it, he devotes his life to spreading the gospel, but not to his own people, but to the Lamanites. The sons of Messiah also give up wealth and power to teach the Lamanites, and Mosiah 28 4 talks of the way Alma and his companions were before the angel visited them and refers to them as the very vilest of sinners. Compare that to what Paul's formerly known as Saul, says in Timothy one fifteen, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. A person would have to intentionally ignore the similarities to not know that this is a cheap ripoff of the conversion of Saul and his subsequent ministry to the Gentiles. When Alma comes out of his angel-induced coma, he says that he is born of the Spirit, which is Messiah 27.25. But as I've mentioned in previous episodes, no one was born of the Spirit until after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus even said that if he did not leave, then the Spirit would not come. And that's in John 16, 7. Messiah 27, 25 says that everyone must be born again. Which is interesting because, uh, as I mentioned before, not only does no one in the Mormon Church talk about being born again, but the term born again is treated as if it were a bad word. When a Mormon meets a person who says that they are born again, they look at them as if they had just said that they sold their soul to the devil and now eat babies. When I had only been a member of the church for a few months, I put a sticker on the back of my car that said something about being born again. And someone in my ward had removed the sticker from my car without even asking my permission. I was later told the sticker was removed for my own good. I had a t-shirt that had a cross on it. This was after my mission here. I had a t-shirt that had a cross on it, and it had some Bible verses, and I think it said, Jesus Christ, the Alternative Rock. And uh, one day, when my girlfriend was over visiting and I was in the shower, she went through my closet and found it, and she threw it away. And uh, when I confronted her about it, she said that, She admitted that she threw it away and said she didn't want me to wear it because it made me look like a born-again Christian. When I pointed out to her that the Book of Mormon says that we must be born again, she got mad and slapped me. The Book of Mormon is what the church uses to get people into the church because without it, there would be no church. And because it agrees with the Bible more than it agrees with LDS doctrine and makes the church look a little bit more Christian. There is, as I mentioned before, almost no Mormonism within the pages of the Book of Mormon. I am convinced that if the missionaries were to try to peddle the Pearl of Great Prize or the Doctrine and Covenants the way they peddle the Book of Mormon, that no one would ever join the Church. On my mission, we were specifically instructed to keep investigators from learning the more unorthodox doctrines until after they had already decided that the Church was true. And I am sure that it is common practice in all missions. Even after joining the church, it is sometimes years before some doctrines are learned and some people belong to the church their entire lives without ever knowing what the church actually believes because they never investigate farther than what they learn in Sunday School. I hope that this has been educational or at least entertaining. Uh, the next section on the Book of Mormon will be about the Book of Alma. but. Because the Book of Alma is so large, I will have to dedicate more than one episode to it. Two at least, but possibly three. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Thanks for listening to the Recovering Faith Podcast. Please rate and review this show and share it with your friends and family. You are loved.